You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Uh, hi everyone, thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, my name is Molly Pucci. I teach 20th century European history here at Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Norman Neymar, who we've invited as part of a new seminar series we introduced here at TCD this year called the International History Seminar Series. Uh, Professor Neymark is a Robert and Florence McDonald Chair in East European History at Stanford University. His work focuses on a number of topics in East European, Soviet, and international history, including radical politics in the Russian Empire, the Soviet military administration in Germany, the establishment of communist power in Eastern Europe, and ethnic cleansing and genocide in 20th century Europe. He's the author of many books, including Russians in Germany, A History of Soviet Zone of Occupation in Germany, Fires of Hatred, Ethnic Cleansing in 20th Century Europe, Stalin's Genocides, and most recently, Genocide of World History. So he's here to speak about his current book project, Stalin in Europe. So he'll speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have about 20 minutes for, for Q&A, so we'll do that at the front. <coughs> Uh, so, without further ado, you'll help me welcome Norman Neymar. So what I want to do uh, tonight is talk about uh, uh, what would, you would call a new old book project, or an old new book project, something I've been working on for a very long time. I'm embarrassed even to admit how long. Um, and uh, uh, there's a tentative title uh, for this, which is called uh, Stalin, Europe, and the Struggle for Sovereignty, 1944 to 1949. And the idea uh, of the book is to look at Stalin's goals, Soviet Union's goals and ideas about what Europe should be after the Second World War, um, and to uh, look at the way Europeans reacted and didn't uh, to what he uh, was offering, and how all of this blended together you know, to create uh, essentially the post-war European world. It's really a three-corner study. I mean, one of the corners is clearly Stalin. Talk about each of these corners. 
the second corner is the Cold War. Uh, and the third corner is really Europe and how Europe acted and reacted in the post-war period. Let me go over uh, those three corners uh, and then proceed to talk about um, the seven chapters of the book. I should say I may actually finish this book in my lifetime. Um, most of it's drafted. I'm drafting the last chapter now, which is about Italy. And we're living in Florence. That's why it was easy or easier to come to Dublin. Um, and I'm hopeful to finish the book in the new year. And that's why it's good to talk to you about it, because this is the stage of any book. It's nice to hear what people say. It's nice to listen to questions. In fact, I'm really sure we have time for that. Um, it's, uh, it's good to get challenges. Uh, and even if you have a better title, you know, especially before the cold, you know, I, you, you think of a title and think that one. Um, uh, my email is neymark at stanford.edu, and I'll give you a credit in the, uh, in the uh, introduction to the book. Okay, these three corners then, first of all, Stalin. Now, we know actually a lot more about Stalin now than we did. You know, 20 years ago when I started on this project. I mean, part of this has to do with the opening of the Stalin archive in Moscow. I mean, we don't want to get big heads about this because, first of all, about a quarter of that archive is still classified. Um, the other thing is that Stalin left almost no personal documents. I mean, no memoirs, no you know, personal letters. Uh, people around him couldn't write about him until much later. I mean, we have Molotov and others writing about him you know, long after he's dead. Um, you know, so we don't really know all that much about him, but we know much more than we did before uh, this archive opened, which was really at the turn of the century. Uh, and there's more scholarship, you know, that has come out. Uh, Steve Kotkin, as you may know, just finished his second volume of the big biography of Stalin. He hasn't finished the third volume yet. Hopefully, I can get my book out before he gets that book out. <laughs> but whatever happens, that book will be uh, shorter. My book will be shorter than his. And his are averaging, what, 1,200 pages or 1,500 pages. Anyway, um, so what do we know? Let me just say briefly about him and then, and then move on. And I'm not going to go into great detail. We know this is a very smart and careful man. We know he's very methodical. We know he's a micromanager. He's into everything. Uh, we know uh, that... He supervises everything in the Soviet Union. Not clearly, he can't do everything, right? But he mixes into everything. Final decisions are always his. Uh, we know the people like Molotov, uh, you know, who would normally be in charge of foreign po policy, and the foreign minister, and was foreign minister, was not really in charge of foreign policy. He had a report constantly to Stalin. Stalin was correcting him, kicking him around a little bit. Still, Molotov had some room. Uh, for maneuver. Uh, and there were others. You know, Zhdanov was one who had also, you know, some room to do some things on his own, but always in consultation with Stalin. So Stalin is in control. Okay? That should be clear. The second of all, you know, Stalin is the ultimate realist. I mean, he's a realist beyond a realist. I mean, he makes Kissinger's realism look like idealism. In fact, even Finnish, I think, has a book called Kissinger, the idealist. Anyway, Stalin's the ultimate realist. And what that means is, 
foreign policy turns, he's always measuring means against ends. He's always looking pragmatically at problems and issues and trying to solve them pragmatically. I mean, he looks at the world through an ideological lens, uh, but those, those or ideological lenses may be the better word, but those lenses, you know, though they're colored, though they're distorted, nevertheless, do not get in the way with, uh, um, uh, from making sane, competent, and realistic uh, decisions. You know, we used to argue a lot about, ide um, about ideology versus realism when dealing with Stalin. I mean, I think that's a false argument, a false dichotomy. It all fits together with him. And again, you know, what he's interested in you know, was forwarding the interests of the Soviet Union in the post-war period. And he's interested in doing it in the most pragmatic and hard-nosed way he possibly uh, uh, can. And again, he interprets those interests ideologically, but they're clear, you know, to the other side of uh, uh, the table. Well, what else would I want to say about Stalin? I mean, he has certain minimum demands in the immediate post-war period. I mean, the minimum demands are essentially that Poland and Romania will be under Soviet control. I and mean, these are geostrategic demands of the Soviet Union that are expressed already in 43 and 44. And it's pretty clear what, they're going, what they want and what they're going to insist on. And one of the things they're going to insist on is they're not being independent. There's not going to be an independent. There's going to be a dependent, friendly Poland that will have its own boundaries. It will not be the another republic of the Soviet Union, even though some Polish communists suggested that. Uh, but it will, you know, uh, th there was not much illusion uh, in the Soviet Union about Poland and what was going to happen to Poland and Romania. Beyond that, I would argue, there's no firm plan during the war. There's no you know, layout of what's going to happen. There are a series of plans that come out of the foreign ministry, some of which identify zones of influence in Europe. Uh, but Stalin never comes down hard one way or another. Okay, let's leave Stalin for now. We can come back to him if you want. Let's talk a little bit about the Cold War, and just a little bit. Because Cold War is something that's really known in the Cold War historiography, something people have read. It's a very well-developed historiography. It developed with the opening you know, of the archives, the Cold War International History Project, which began almost immediately after the East European and Russian uh, archives opened in uh, 1991. This project published a lot of stuff, fostered a lot of research, a lot of good books came out. We know a lot about the Cold, about the Cold War. I mean, we don't know. Um, it's not as if your colleague, as your colleague John Gaddis says, we now know. That's the title of his book about the Cold War, meaning, you know, it's all over and we know everything there is to know. That's not true. Uh, but we know a heck of a lot more. Uh, and, uh, and what we know, uh, you know, it has accumulated again in a very, I think, admirable literature. Uh, the most recent is Anne Applebaum's Iron Curtain. But the literature, I argue in this book, has sort of overdone the Cold War. I mean, I'm trying to kind of play down the Cold War, both because I think we talk too much about it in terms of <coughs> European history, but also because I don't think it determines as much as we think it determines. In other words, choices of Europeans 
actions, how they act, how they react, and I'll get to that in a second, uh, are extremely important, and you get almost none of that in the Cold War literature. What you get is boom, boom, Soviet Union on one side, and for some people, boom, boom, the United States on the other. And, you know, some are even, sometimes they're equal uh, eagles, sometimes one's more, sometimes one's less. But it's always Europe is considered, you know, as a dependent of these powers. And not as an actor in and of itself, and I believe it was an actor in and of itself. So, the Cold War literature in Applebaum's book, I mean, is a good example. I think it's a per perfectly good book. But what she basically says in that book, and I'm exaggerating only a little bit, is that in 1945, when the war is over, the Iron Curtain descends. You know, and I don't believe there was an Iron Curtain. England Churchill said there was an Iron Curtain, which was a year later. And I'm not sure there was an Iron Curtain in 47 and 48. So I'm what I'm trying to do in this book is push the borders of the Cold I'm also I'm trying to minimize a little bit what the Cold War meant, but I'm also trying to push back the borders of what the Cold War was. Meaning, you know, trying to say, don't, don't mix up what are the origins of the Cold War. It was like Marshall Plan, Truman Doctrine, you know, formation of the common system, all these things we know about. Don't mix those up with an actual Cold War, which is a system. You know, an established system in Europe, which I say comes later on. You know, 48, maybe 49, and in 50. Okay? So that's, that's sort of the argument of the book when it comes to the Cold War. Now let me turn to Europe. And again, the fundamental thing I'm trying to do here is to, uh, you know, provide the Europeans with agency, basically. I mean, to say they have a lot to do with what happens to their countries after the war. And, uh, and they do this in a number of different ways. First of all, one of the things uh, that I've, uh, uh, that I've I said, discovered, but one of the things that has struck me in this work is that there were so many really good, really competent, really focused, really articulate, really capable European politicians in the post-war period. You would think, coming out of the Second World War, the devastation and the destruction and the killing, you know, of zillions of uh, people. Um, I mean, zillions is a slightly saturated. Sixty million or more. Um, that, that there wouldn't be these capable people coming up, but they are coming up, and they're coming up both on the left and on the right and in the middle. So you have very capable political leaders who are emerging from this devastation of the war to lead their countries forward. And these countries, by the way, share a lot of common characteristics. Again, Europe is not divided between East and West in 1945. By no means. I mean, there are many similar, more similarities between North and South in some cases. I mean, it's destroyed. It's hungry. It's cold. There are no jobs. It needs rebuilding. And it needs competent political leaders who are going to lead them into, you know, a, a, a new era because of the destruction not just of physical, but of moral and ethical uh, grounds of society. <clears throat> so Europe you know, shares enormous commonalities. So the book I'm writing then, um, you know, has uh, examples, cases from Eastern and Western Europe. I'm trying to do away, I mean, even though I'm formerly an East Europeanist, you know, I'm trying to do away with those distinctions. I'm trying to think more broadly in terms of Europe 
and its variations. Clearly, they're variations. But they're variations on a single thing. <coughs> they're not variations on two things, one east and one west. Right? So that's, that's part of the Europe story. Another part of the Europe story is elections. I mean, one of the things <coughs> that struck me in doing this work and doing this research um, is how important elections were. How people took elections really seriously. And elections had really serious results. So that when people voted, for example, in Austria uh, in 1946, or they voted in Italy in 1948, or they voted in Germany, or they voted elsewhere, these elections really meant a lot. They meant a lot even to the Soviets. You know, even in their part. I mean, they falsified falsified elections, right, in Poland, the referendum. Um, but even that meant a lot to how they thought about what they were going to do in that country. They knew they would lose an election. And when they did lose the Austrian election, for example, it was a terrible shock to them. I mean, the communists proved to be completely incapable, you know, of doing anything, unlike uh, the communists in Italy. So, so part of the argument is that politics I mean, social history, I, 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 you know, I don't mean to in any way demean the social history of culture or, um, or uh, economic history of the post-war period, all of which are extremely important. But I'm focusing on politics, because I think politics are crucial in this rebuilding of Europe. So that's basically the three corners and how, you know, they uh, interact. That Stalin... You know, he's trying to, he's got some ideas about what he wants to do. Uh, we've got um, the Cold War, and we've got Europe. I want to mention one more thing, and that is Stalin's policy, before I get to the uh, actual case studies, Stalin's policies uh, having to do with uh, post-war Europe. The policies can be um, uh, uh, summarized by an attempt to create what he called new democracies, um, eventually became called people's democracies. Um, and these were meant to be a kind of transition form between uh, the old bourgeois um, governments, or those governments that hadn't yet gone through fully a bourgeois revolution, and the socialist one. They were meant to be parliamentarian. They were meant to have free parties. They were meant to have coalitions, if possible, on the left, or even the left and the middle. Uh, and they were meant to be, um, they were meant to be real democracies. Okay? And that, that was the policies that Stalin pushed. And he pushed those policies immediately after the war together with politicians who had emerged from the resistance, right? communists who came back from Moscow, and others who said, we're going to create a new kind of Europe. Because the old one you know, basically gave in to fascism and the Nazis um, uh, and uh, you know, turned bad. So we're going to prevent this with an anti-fascist coalition based on the popular democratic, uh, popular democratic goal. Now, there's a, there's a big question here, and um, 
we can earn that on the Lord. If I'm doing this, or I probably am. Yeah. Am I getting too excited? Or <laughs> push it down a little bit? How about that? Okay. All right. Um, maybe I'll try to be quiet. Um, <laughs> so uh, the argument is, and one of my best pals really in the world and a, a colleague in Moscow named Lini we no longer get together it takes two minutes before we start arguing about this. <laughs> the argument goes a little bit like this. Gideonsky and most people will suggest that this period of the new democracies is a fake. It's a pull-off. In other words, what Stalin is doing is just kind of cheating and saying to the West, oh yes, we believe in this, for, you know, and we're going to put through real democracy, and um, uh, he's just waiting, in other words, for the opportunity than to seize power and take over power, which eventually, of course, he does in Eastern Europe. And in Western Europe, it's more complicated, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the, the basic question is, you know, is are these policies a fake and do they mean nothing? As some people think they mean nothing. Right? My view is they mean a lot. That it's not inconceivable you know, looking from 1945, I mean, if you look from 19, you know, 2017 or from 1989 or from when most of this historiography was written, it certainly looks like, you know, Stalin was out to get Europe as much of it as he possibly could, put it in his pocket, make it communist, and, you know, throw away the keys. Um, but if you look from 1945, even if you look at the Soviet Union and Stalin and what they want and what they're thinking, there is an openness that the historiography would not allow. Right? Things could have evolved in other directions. They didn't for historical reasons. And that's what history is all about. Right? And history, you know, tells you how things evolve. Um, and they're small and different and sometimes idiosyncratic things that take place that make certain developments happen, like the Stalinization of Eastern Europe and the division of Europe, which did happen. I mean, I'm not denying it happened. But the question is, did it have to happen? I don't think so. And were there openings in 1945 and 46 and 47 for things to go other ways? I do. I think there were. And that's a really powerful argument. Powerful in the sense that people don't agree with that. <laughs> right? I mean, I, uh, uh, my friend and I just argued constantly. And then he thinks I'm an idiot. I mean, on this issue, you know, completely taken in, in other words, by some. But the more I read, the more I look at it, the more I try to say, okay, what, did, what was going on? Were people just... Here's the, here's the final thing I want to say about this. And it ties into what I was saying before. These politicians are so talented in the post-war period. I keep thinking to myself, other people have mentioned this as well, were they so stupid to engage in these new democracies when they should have known what we know, which is that they were a fake from the beginning. And we're talking about a lot of, you know, not just, again, communists, but non-communists and people in the center, the right-wingers, who participate in the building of new democracies, thinking this was going to work. Now, again, you know, Gibeonsky would say they're all taken in by stuff. And a lot of people, not just them, a lot of people. So that's, that's one of the arguments that weaves its way through. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is quickly, um, and I'll, I'll hopefully be done on time, 
and we'll get those questions so you can think about those titles too. Um, I want to go through the seven case studies. Now, these case studies are not going to satisfy the social scientists among them. They were not scientifically chosen. They were chosen because I chose them <laughs> for illustrating certain points that I wanted to make about the post-war world. Okay? So they're idiosyncratic. Idiosyncratic, for those of you who don't know, doesn't mean it comes from an idiot. <laughs> I don't know why that just occurred to me. It's been my 13-year-old son too long. <laughs> we spent the day together. Um, uh, anyway, the point is these are idiosyncratic cases. I've chosen to take, illustrate different points that I want to make in this, in this book. Okay. So here we go. First case is actually one that's known the least, and that's about the island of Bornholm. You know the island of Bornholm? Baltic Sea, about 250 kilometers northeast of Lubeck, one of the biggest islands, I think it is the biggest island in the Baltic Sea, which the Soviets occupied uh, from May uh, of 1945 until June of 1946. It's occupied for a full year. There are a lot of arguments why it was occupied. I mean, part of it had to do with there was a German detachment on Bornholm, and the Soviets chased them off. But then they stayed. And then the question is, how long would they stay? Now, you may know one of the most famous, I'm sure the two of you do, one of the most famous quotes in all of Cold War history, especially before the archives were open, came from Bill who said, you know, wherever the respective armies go, meaning Soviet and American, so too go their political systems. So, you know, Soviets march in the East, there's going to be communism there, Americans march in the West, there's going to be democracy. That's not true. The Soviets didn't Sovietize Bornholm. They occupied it. People didn't know for how long. Again, they didn't know when they would leave or how they would leave. Or if they would leave. Uh, and nobody was going to push them off. Bornholm is very strategically important. Even during the war, you know, we have documents from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that shows that the ministry has its eye on Bornholm, saying, well, you know, the belts and sound, you know, the Danish belts and sound, the Kiel Canal, and Bornholm were the three critical parts of Western Baltic uh, security for the Soviet Union. So it could be the Soviets would have stayed. One of the things that happened uh, was uh, the Danes, of course, were looking at this, and the argument I make in this chapter, I mean, my wife is giving me signals, I'm not going to finish in time, but she's right. Um, uh, <coughs> What happens in Bornholm essentially is that the Danes convince the argument I would make and have made, um, convince the Soviets to leave. And they convince them the Soviets to leave by doing a number of things. First of all, they don't bring up Bornholm. They don't yell about it. Papers are not allowed to write about it. The second thing they do is they offer the Soviets very favorable trade, trade agreements. One of the most interesting ones that Catherine will be, my wife will be interested in, because she went to these big apatiti mines, and these mines up in the north, was that the Soviets were going to trade apatiti for bacon. And Stalin said at one point, bacon is gold. <laughs> and, and at that point, it was. You know, so an apatiti is some mineral God knows what you use it for. We, we never been able to figure it out. But, but, the, but the idea was to set up a trade agreement with the Soviets. And the Soviets are very interested in this trade agreement. 
The other things that the Danes did is they kept the British at bay. They said the British let us handle this. We'll take care of it. Stay away from us. And then the Americans were going to stay away from it because you know Denmark was basically a British, you know, it was under British control at the end of the war. And the Soviets picked up and left. Now there's a man named uh, Bent Jensen, who's a wonderful historian of the Bornholm occupation, um, uh, who argues that the Danes did badly in Bornholm. Because one of the things they did is they signed an agreement saying that foreign troops could not go to Bornholm. In other words, that the Danes would agree not to allow foreign troops to get to Bornholm. And he said this was a, you know, this was a limitation of Danish sovereignty. I, I, would, I argue the opposite, essentially. I argue it was a great agreement. It was really smart. And that they found a way you know, to appeal to Solomon, essentially. And to say, okay, relations will be good between us if you leave one. And they did this all underhanded. I mean, they did none of this was in the public press, none of this was argued publicly, which is really bad in the Soviet case, and it was all done in this quiet way. Well, you know, again, Jensen argues differently, and he and, and by the way, NATO is not supposed to be on Bornholm still. Okay, so Bornholm's the first case. Second case, and these are not necessarily in order. I haven't figured out for you. Going to go more quickly. Uh, Poland. I mean, in here is a very interesting case, right? Because we all think, and rightly so, and I mentioned in the beginning, that Poland was going to be in the Soviet orbit no matter what. But how is it going to be in the Soviet orbit? And the leader of Poland, Władysław Kamunka, had his own ideas. Had his own ideas. And those ideas matched well with the new democracy ideas. So initially, 45, 46, Gamolka and Stalin, I know I can't say we're holding hands, but they agreed completely on what should be done in Poland. Right? But Gamolka continued to hold those ideas <coughs> even after the Soviets began tightening things up. Formation coming for and that sort of thing. Gamolka said, no, no. You know, we are following the Polish road to socialism. Everybody follows their own road to socialism. You know, we are friends with the Soviet Union, but we are not going to go along with some of the things that the common form is telling us to do, like collectivize agriculture, like do some things politically that we would have don't want to do. And there was another issue for Kamolka. It was a big part of his argument with Stalin, and that was the Jews. Let's see if I can do this quickly. I mean, basically, the Polish Communist Party was led primarily by Jews. They were very noticeable in Polish leadership. Gomolko had said to Stalin, you know, there are all these Jews. And the Polish people, the people we want to be part of this communist system, don't like these Jews. And Gomolko was right, by the way. Poland was horribly anti-Semitic after the war. It was a very difficult place for Jews to be. And, and Polish folk, meaning peasants, workers, were not happy with Jews. And especially communists were sort of equated with Jews. So Gomolka says, I want to get them out of the party. And Stalin says, no. And Gomolka says, then I'm leaving the party. At one point, Gomolka's pulled to Moscow. He talks to Stalin. He argues with Stalin. We have these documents. And he says, you know, we're going to fail unless we get the Jews out of the party. It won't be a real people's party. These people are too loyal <coughs> to broader forces. And what Gamulka means is also to the Soviet Union. 
right? They're not just loyal to Paul. And the result is uh, Gomulka is removed from the party. He's put under house arrest in uh, 1951, spends two and a half years under house arrest. But, you know, Stalin dies in March 1953. Gomulka comes out and becomes the ruler of Poland in 1956, a kind of national communist. So uh, the argument I'm trying to make in this chapter is that politics occur even in communist systems. And that even when you're dealing directly with Stalin, politics is part of the story. And that Kabulka is following a road to sovereignty. He's looking for a road to sovereignty. The Poles control their own destiny. I, you know, I don't necessarily approve of this. I don't actually think he was an anti-Semite. He was married to a Jew, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. But the point is, the point is, he was looking as an individual for what he thought were Poland's interests. Not the interest of Moscow. Let's move on. Uh, what should we move on to? Austria. I mean, the Austrian case is a very interesting case. Again, you can see these are idiosyncratic cases. Most of them are not dealt with in most of the literature on the Cold War or on the division of Europe. The case of Austria is really interesting for a number of different reasons. First of all, the communists were extremely weak. Extremely weak. And the communists were essentially begging. So the Union to take, you know, to divide Austria in two the way Germany was, and to set up an Austrian zone, and then the communists could rule. Because in the general election in late 1945, the communists won five percent of the vote. Five percent of the vote. You know, and the Soviets would say, Who are you people? You can't get you know, and they were they were very upset by this. Another thing that happened in Austria. And a very talented social democratic leader by the name of Karl Renner. Karl Renner had been around for a very long time. And Stalin said at one point, you know, let's go find that old fox. And they found that old fox um, and put him in charge of the government in Austria. And what Stalin thought is if, if Renner, as a social democrat, would be in charge of the government, he would then leave the charge for more progressive Austria. But what happened is Renner managed to convince, I mean, the Allies, Western Allies, weren't so happy about that and fought against Renner for a while. But Renner managed to convince them. So he was able to create a sovereign government in Austria. I mean, Austria, unlike Germany, was not divided into two. Austria had its own government, unlike Germany. Now, Germany had four different governments, right? And then eventually two. But Austria had a single government. And so Renner could then push. Um, push his own uh, uh, program. The essential question is about Austria, why the Soviets stayed. This may have something to do with jealous. I doubt it. I think they were just being perverse at a certain point. I mean, I argue in 48 and 49 there were a series of negotiations where all of the issues were settled. All of the issues were settled between East and West. They even said they're settled. And Vyshinsky, who becomes the new foreign minister, says, you know, we're ready. You know, it's going to happen, and it doesn't happen. And I just think in that case what happens is that, you know, Stalin's not, he's very rational, he's very reasonable, but he can also be perverse. And I think he was just being perverse. You know, and as a result, because there was no good reason for them to be there, and that they eventually left in 1955 is an indication that there was no good once Stalin went, Khrushchev after him and Molotov, uh, Khrushchev after him said, you know, 
There's no reason to be in Austria. Why are we there? Let's go. And so they did. They negotiated next uh, for Austria. Another case I deal with is Albania. Uh, there's a new book coming out, by the way, Cornell. It's just out by a man named Elidor Mihili. Mihili, I think his name is. A very fine historian who does a kind of history of Albanian communism. And it's really very interesting. And I, you know, all the things we learned, I think, about Enver Hoxha were wrong, or at least that I learned. Enver Hoxha was an extremely talented politician, a man of great focus and, um, and political ability. I mean, he was a criminal at one point when he killed people, when he felt like he needed to kill them. But he, you know, he, he negotiated a path for Albania for Albanian sovereignty. And some of you may know what that path is, but very quickly, you know, it started out, actually the British were in Albania and were a very powerful influence in 1944, but then the British were thrown out and the Yugoslavs took their place. When the Yugoslavs in 44, you know, to 40, late 44 to 46 and early 47, Yugoslavs were the dominant influence in Albania. And the Yugoslavs said to themselves, well, maybe we should just, you know, the Yugoslavs had a very big head. Anybody who studied the Yugoslavs, they had made their own revolution. Tito thought he was, you know, king of the Balkans. And so uh, he wanted to absorb Albania. And he went to Stalin, and, or one of his uh, deputies went to Stalin, and Stalin said, go ahead and swallow Albania. And Stalin said, okay. He didn't care much about Albania. It was little, it was small, it was poor didn't think much of its strategic importance, so you know, let the Yugoslavs have it. Hoja understood this was what was happening. Right? And so he started talking to the Soviets who were in Tirana, including the ambassador and then Chiraki, and we have a lot of, again, we have a lot of these documents, so it makes it really nice, juicy stuff, right? So he's talking to, um, he's talking to the ambassador in, um, uh, in, Tirana, and what's happening in 47 and 48 is that the Soviets are increasingly getting upset by Tito and his ambitions. And his ambitions in Greece, and his ambitions with Bulgaria, and his ambitions with, even though Stalin said swallow Albania, he didn't really want him to swallow Albania. I mean, that's Stalin. You don't remember, this guy's perverse. Um, so the more the Yugoslavs start you know, looking at shots about Albania, the more the Soviets get worried. And they, through Chewbacca, they contact Hoja. And as the split develops between Yugoslavia, are you with me? As the split develops between Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union in the spring of 1948, Hoja then does a flip. And he goes over the Soviet side and throws out the Yugoslavs, which then contributes then to the split and he's now lined up for the Soviet Union. And those of you who know the further story know that what happened is eventually Hoja didn't like the Soviets either, and they were getting too close. So when the Sino-Soviet split came at the end of the 60s, he does a flip picture, and he goes over to the Chinese side and kicks out the Soviet advisors. And eventually, even the Chinese are not good enough for him. He proclaims himself the last Stalinist in the world, and you know he rules Albania until the late 80s. Now, you know, Whatever you can say about Hoja, that's being a very successful politician. I mean, maybe not for the Albanian people in the end, you know, although supposedly that's what he was serving. All right, I gotta move on. Uh, 
So Finland's also a very, very interesting. There, these are all really interesting places. You know, you actually you could write a book about each one. It's one of my problems, and so what I'm trying to do is to narrow the focus of what it is I'm looking at, you know, um, and, and keep it keep it closed, and not try to write a whole, you know, dissertation as it were about Albania you know, <coughs> in this period, but to, to focus on narrow political issues. Uh, in Finland, uh, you have this situation where the Finns were on the wrong side of the war a couple of times. And being on the wrong side of the war, the Soviets were there, the British were there in the Allied uh, 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 Commission, Allied Control Commission as well. The Americans actually had nothing to do with Finland, which one of the places where the British, you know, British documents are what you really need to look at, not American documents and that sort of thing. But uh, the story of Finland is the Soviets are sitting out there in Finland, in this Allied Control Council. It's headed up by Jadon was one of the biggest and most important politicians, you know, lieutenants and stuff, Andrei Zhdan. And he uh, is watching the Finns like a hawk. And on, on the other side is the Finnish government, led by a conservative named Paasikivi, Yuha Paasikivi, who is a, a diagonal conservative that knows the Russians really well. As does, by the way, General Mannerheim, you know, who was the great figure in Finnish history and the great German war hero, because they'd been part of the Russian Empire. Right? They spoke perfect Russian. Perfect Russian. Even better Russian, you know, than most of the people in the Kremlin, because they had the old imperial training. Right? And that impressed the Soviets. Anyway, the point is, so Paskini is working with Stalin and against him, trying to maintain Finnish sovereignty. While Donov is saying you've got to try all those war criminals, and Donovsky is saying, well, there are only a few of them. And they need to do things that bad. And Donov pushes back. You have to try them. There are territorial issues, there are economic issues, there are other issues where the two of them are pushing on each other. And the conclusion is basically a new Finnish Soviet agreement in 1948 which makes it possible, I mean, a lot of people are very critical of it later on. I mean, when we were students, or, you know, people were critical of Finlandization. But what did Finlandization mean? It meant that Finland was sovereign in turn, could run its own politics, universities, its, you know, its economics. It couldn't have its own foreign policy. They couldn't make a deal with a second country you know, outside the Soviet Union without the Soviet's approval. But it had its sovereignty. It was able to control itself. And anybody who was in Finland in the 70s or 80s and would go into the Soviet Union, as I did many times, it was a different kind of country. It was a free country. So here I'm arguing again about the... the, the um, about the... Uh, perspicacity of some of these politicians, about their ability to defend the sovereignty of their countries, about the importance of elections, because Kalasakini came back always with victories in these elections. The communists couldn't do very much. They wanted to try to do more. Um, but he kept them at bay. OK, I think there are two more, uh, and we'll, we'll be fine, and we'll be back. You okay? Yeah, we'll, we'll just do these really fast. Berlin blockade. 
Now, this is very well known. This is, uh, you know, people know all about the Berlin blockade and about, you know, Stalin cutting off the city of Berlin and then the valiant American um, uh, pilots, you know, bringing in food uh, in an airlift to feed the city of Berlin, you know, saving Berlin then from the communists, and that's the kind of nice story of the Cold War, and it is mostly a nice story of the Cold War. I mean, they dropped candy, they were called Rezinenbomberg, meaning they were dropping raisins, you know, from their, from their uh, uh, bombers and bringing candy and food to the Berliners. It was really quite, a, quite, a, quite an operation. What I'm trying to argue in this uh, chapter is not so much, in part, it's what the Soviets were up to, because it's clear from the documents Stalin had no intention whatsoever of getting into a war with the U.S. about Berlin, uh, about getting into a war with the U.S. about Berlin. This was a pure bluff. And it was a bluff that didn't work. I mean, it shows that he made mistakes, too. Because he ended up losing a lot in Berlin. I'll talk about that in a second. But it was a bluff to see if he could get us maximally to stop the formation of the West German state, which was coming in the beginning of 1948. Um, and minimally to get us out of Berlin, out of West Berlin. And by the way, there wasn't such a foolish goal on his part. There were plenty of people in Washington who still didn't like Germans. Remember, Germans were not popular, right? For good reason. And there were plenty of people who said, what are we, what are we sacrificing possibly our own military and, 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 and our own fortune, you know, for a bunch of crummy, two million crummy Germans? Why do that? So there were many people who argued against. There were people who argued for staying and for actually fighting. Uh, the uh, commander of the American forces, um, uh, the governor of American forces in Germany, Lucius Clay, argued, let's bust through, take tanks and bust through. And of course, Patton, who, wherever he is, he's saying, bust through, let's fight. Uh, we can take them. Um, but Sainer heads, heads prevailed, and they come up with this Luftbrunner, this uh, air. But what I want to argue is there's a very important internal history of the Berlin blockade. And it goes a little bit like this. When the Soviets blockaded, uh, and it wasn't a complete blockade, by the way, the Germans could always get food. Stalin wasn't going to start, he didn't want to starve them. But what he did is he set up alternative points in the East saying, come get our food, come get our coal, just sign up. You didn't even have to join any party or anything. You just had to sign up. Right? And you could come do it. And there was a very talented, there were a series of talented leaders in West Berlin, but the SPD leader, a man named Ernst Reuter, said to the population, don't touch that. We touch that, and the autonomy and the freedom of our people is gone. <coughs> and the result was only a few thousand people. Imagine, people are hungry. They're cold. Lights are off at night, right? Um, it's dark, like this. And they, they have no lights, right? They have no heat, and they don't have much to eat. So anyway, the point is, uh, the people of Berlin make that choice. And there are a series of very important manifestations of tens of thousands of people showing up in the big squares of Berlin saying, you know, we want our freedom. If you know this history, Reuter, 
gives a, one of the most famous speeches of the end of the Cold War, where he says, Schau auf diese Stadt, you know, look at our city, look at how we're standing up for freedom against the Russians. And in fact, they did. And we did look. It made a big difference what they did. A big difference you know, to the American government, to the British government, what they did. Not only that, I argue in this chapter that West Berlin was created out of the, out of the blockade. Before then, Germans couldn't have given a hoot about politics. Really, they were really in bad shape. They couldn't, you know, communists, non-communists, they weren't paying any attention. They were apathetic. They were beat up. They were hurting. You know, they were hungry. They were cold. Their men weren't home still. They were still in the Russian POW camps. They were really, you know, at, at, at the bottom. Uh, but when that happened, then they emerged from it, and that became something different. That's the argument. Okay, the final chapter, I think this is the seventh, I'm pretty sure, is Italy. And that's what I'm working on now, I'm there now. It's a great kick uh, to work, and I'm working on the uh, 1948 elections. And let me do this again very quickly, April 1948, super important elections. You know, you have the Communist Party of uh, Italy, 2.3 million members allied with the, uh, um, the Socialist Party uh, of Italy uh, in an electoral battle with the Christian Democrats. And again, you know, the way Cold War historiography interprets the battle is that the Russians are helping the, the communists, but the U.S. is helping even more, and it's the CIA. And it's true. It's the first undercover operation of the CIA where they're bringing in bags of money right, and handing them to the anti-communist politicians. They're getting Italians at home to write letters you know, to their Italian relatives and friends and everybody saying, you know, if you vote for the communists, you're not going to get them off the hook. Then eventually we were so worried about losing that election that we announced publicly. Marshall announced publicly at Berkeley. Uh, you know, before the election, about a month and a half before the election, you will not get Marshall Plan aid. Make the, because the communists were saying, well, we'll take, we'll take Marshall Plan aid too. Right? I mean, Togliatti said that. Yeah. And Marshall said, make no bones about it, you're not getting anything from us. Right? If you vote the communists. Then, of course, the church uh, was in it in a big way. And I don't want to go into that. But the, the point of the chapter, you know, returns to the overall point of the book, and here I'll conclude, you know, that um, the people of it turned out in that election. I think it was like 93.5%, something like that. Enormous turnout. You know, unimaginable in the American context. 93% uh, of the people turned out in that election, and they voted Christian Democrat. A lot of it had to do with the church. I argue, more with the church than with the CIA. Uh, and the communists lost more because of what the Italians thought they wanted in their society and what they thought they would get you know, from the PCI than from what Stalin did or didn't do. So it's a kind of Europe-driven book which is trying to show the openness, the change, the times hopefulness, uh, and the domination of politics in the post. Yeah. Thank you very much.